The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Today, expert knowledge is so highly valued that we learn to lead first as the expert whose mastery of the details helps teams solve problems. Eventually, as your leadership role expands, expert leaders find themselves in a role where others know more. Details are no longer so accessible, and decisions are made without a full understanding. Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone with Dr. Wanda Wallace. It's time to find out how to make the transformation smooth and flawless. Now, here is Dr. Wanda Wallace. Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. I'm your host, Wanda Wallace. In today's show, we're going to focus on the mistakes that we watch leaders make. I believe the research says that, on general, when we put leaders in a position, about 50% of the time, we get the results that we're looking for, which means two things. One, we're not very good at selecting, and two, we're not very good at developing the leadership capability when we have the opportunity. So joining me today are two very special guests. The first is Paul Minks. Um, Paul has spent 16 years as head of talent development and leadership development in a financial services firm. Lots of experience watching managers come and go and leaders develop and not develop. So, Paul, welcome to the show. Thanks, Wanda. Thanks for having me. And my second guest is Rob Kaiser. Rob spent more than 20 years coaching, assessing, researching, and writing about what really makes for effective leadership among corporate leaders. So, Rob, welcome to the show. Thank you, Juan. It's great to be on. It's great to have both of you. So let's start in this first half of the show. I want to focus really on the mistakes that you watch people make. And then as we get later in the show, we'll turn to talk a little bit about how it is that we can go about developing capability in a better way. But for now, Paul, let me start with you. So from your experience in financial services and the other firms that you've seen over your career, what in your mind really goes wrong with leaders? So where do you see people crash and burn? You know, there are several circumstances, you know, which I see this happen, and I know from, from my years in investment banking, which has had quite a bit of crash and burn uh, since the financial crisis, you know, I'd say it's a couple things. One is um, certainly over the last five years, the inability to deal appropriately with stress. Um, and, you know, the problem with stress, is, as you know, is that if you don't deal with it, if you pretend it's not happening, it can exaggerate some of your worst tendencies and and we tend to forget our our better selves so if you're if you tend to be quite directive or bossy um, when you get stressed you become frequently more bossy or, or or the opposite which is if you're quite detail focused and you get stressed out you you go deeper and deeper into the detail um, another thing is that people as they get more senior sometimes will over-rely on what worked last time or over-rely on what has been identified as strengths that they've got. Um, I think it's just a natural human tendency. 
and that what worked well in the last role, you know, um, you assume will work well in the in the next one. And I, I always think of a of a senior leader I was working with in the operations area of of the firm. Uh, he was ex-military, brilliant ex, um, executor, and and was really exactly what you want. Was fantastic in a crisis. Um, the, the problem was he was promoted, um, which I suppose he didn't see as a problem in, from his perspective. But he was now managing instead of executing. He was now managing a group of managers, so he needed to get work done through other people. Um, and, and unfortunately, he didn't figure that out, even though he had an executive coach. Um, and it, it didn't go well in the end, and he ended up leaving leaving the company. So he didn't realize you have to get things done by influence um, at, at that level. And I guess the last thing I would say really quickly as an intro is that um, I've, I've seen people crash and burn, seen leaders when they, when they forget their core values um, or forget who they are, the things that, you know, make them happy, that get them up um, in the morning, um, get them into work. And I remember a, a person who I was coaching, actually, who felt and kept saying that he felt like he'd lost his purpose. I mean, he'd worked so hard for so many years, and uh, he just sort of lost his way. He, he actually characterized himself as a as a rat in a maze, which wasn't a very good um, way to characterize yourself. But after we went through the coaching process, what, what he realized was um, actually that, that he wanted to return to his his family, um, and you know, he, he he thanked me for for making me realize that uh, you know he actually had a wife, <laughs> um, and that he had been spending too many too many hours at, at at the office, and had sort of lost what was really um, important to him. So, those are three things to start off with. I think that I've seen, and there there are quite a few others. Paul, that's really interesting. I'm going to take the last one, and then I want to comment on the first one, first and second one. So this notion I hear from leaders all the time that if you're not passionate about what you're doing, you're not going to be effective. I hear that routinely as advice. If you're not passionate, you're not excited about it, don't get up every morning wanting to go to work, then you're in the wrong job, find another one. I've certainly also worked with leaders who like the job, but they're not doing the things anymore on the job that get them excited. Um, and so is that the kind of stuff you're talking about here with this particular person? Um, it was. I mean, one option which we explored through the coaching process was for him to find some way to re- reconstruct the job, to bring in other responsibilities that that he used to have that he excited him um, that made him passionate about the work and I think ultimately he just decided um, that that wasn't that was no longer really going to work for him um, but yes definitely I think you you really need to keep in touch with that initial passion that got you into the work environment in the first place that leads to an interesting comment about your second point, about continuing to do the same thing and not recognizing that what you need to do is to work through other people. Um, at the heart of my message about expert leaders, I often hear from financial services leaders that they loved the financial aspects of their early day, the getting into the details of the deal. Yet as you advance in an organization, you have to let other people get into the details. So any advice about you know how to manage this component of working through other people when you're not the one doing the deal anymore? 
I was working with a leader once who, um, this was a technology company, but it was very similar, who uh, actually he was quite senior and was still coding. He was still programming um, at, at his desk. And what he discovered was that he, by working through more junior technologists who actually were very passionate also, he could connect with them on the passion level without actually having to do the work itself. They could do the work, but he could have passionate conversations with them, you know, over lunch, drinks, whatever was appropriate. So he could connect with passion, but not actually do the work. Fabulous, fabulous. All right, the last thing I'm going to make a comment on here is this whole notion of stress. I'm certainly seeing a lot of um, focus on mindfulness as a technique for reducing stress. I find it interesting that you say, though, what happens under stress is people actually overuse their strengths. So they overdo the detail or they overdo their whatever leadership behaviors they have. So very interesting. And that's a perfect point. Let me bring Rob into this conversation. So, Rob, you've assessed and coached thousands of corporate leaders over the years, along with your own very effective research on what makes for great leadership. Where do you see leaders crash and burn? Well, it's interesting, Wanda. I, I see a lot of the same stuff Paul's talking about, the dark side of personality under stress, uh, the reliance on what worked in the past and all that sort of stuff. I would frame it up in a, in, in, in a contextual kind of sense. And here's what I mean. I see most leaders derail during a significant transition, whether that's moving from one company to another, from one business to another, from one culture to another, or maybe the most often is whenever you move into a bigger job. In all of these situations, all of a sudden you're thrown into a new game where you've got to learn new rules. The stress can kick in, and all these other dynamics that Paul's talking about come to the fore. And the key, though, is you have to adapt one way or another. Maybe the, the most common version of all this I see, or at least it's uh, over the course of my career I've seen it time and time again, is that movement from a director job in a particular functional area to a VP-level job where you've got broad, cross-functional, financial, and strategic responsibilities on a much greater scope and scale. And, oh, by the way, the politics get a lot more complicated, too. In these situations, it is that key thing of strengths becoming weaknesses when they're overplayed. So the deep technical brilliance that that coder had can become a limited way of viewing the world, and the reliance on those technical skills narrows you and gets in the way of that more broader way of leading across the organization. So the key thing is that you see these strengths become weaknesses in points of transition. You know, uh, Warren Buffett likes to say that when the tide goes out, you can see who's been swimming naked. <laughs> so whenever you're in face-to-face with a major change, that's when we see exactly what you're made of. Can you rise to the challenge or are you stuck in a way that used to work but it was splendidly designed for a world that no longer exists. So do you think companies are particularly good at identifying the uh, transition points and helping people prepare for them, or are we just helping people get it? Yeah, sorry, I cut you off there. No, I don't. I I think a lot of the the problem is that we don't do a good job. I like to think of the transitions as happening in in three phases, right? You have pre-boarding, on-boarding, 
and in-flight course corrections or adjustments. All too often, it seems that it's a sink-or-swim mentality where somebody's really good in this job, so almost out of fairness or justice, we give them the promotion to the next job without really stopping either to think about how likely they are to rise to the challenge or preparing them for the different ways they're going to have to adapt. And by that, there's a simple model. What are you going to have to keep doing and rely on and maybe refine? You know, what skills and competencies that are working for you are going to be critical in that next role? But then what things that are critical to success are going to be less important or in some ways even detrimental in that next role? For instance, the great technical brilliance and technical expertise can become a blinder and a limiter, or that real hard-charging, take-charge, assertive approach in a smaller functional job can start to look like rough elbows and bad manners and micromanagement and this sort of thing in a more senior role. But then here's the other thing, too. What untested areas, things you haven't had to use before, are all of a sudden going to come to the fore and be critical in that next role? The classic one, of course, is strategic thinking. Typically, we don't have to develop those skills until we get to a senior role, and we do a horrible job of preparing people to cultivate that kind of skill set until it's too late. Interesting, Rob. Um, so if I summarize what all of you have said, it's, or both of you have said, it's the stress and then overusing your strengths in those moments of stress so that you're overdoing a thing that you've used in the past. It's two, an inability to recognize that a new role demands that I let go of old ways of behaving and leading and adopt, learn whole new ways of leading. So it's recognizing that transition point and adjusting. Um, Three, it's this ability to work in and around people um, four, I think also it's this notion that um, you there are things that are untested. I like the way you phrased that, Rob. Very nicely stated. All right, so we're going to take a break at this moment. When we come back, we'll continue to talk with Rob Kaiser and Paul Minx. But now I want to turn to this notion of, so what can I do as an individual thrust into a new role to develop my leadership capability? We'll be right back. Hope you join us. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. If you want more information on the coaching and seminars we offer, go to our website at www.leadershipforuminc.com. If you are interested in finding out more, you can also purchase a copy of the forthcoming book or any of Dr. Wallace's current books by clicking on the links under the resources tab on our website at www.leadershipforuminc.com. You're also sure to find some handy links, videos, and more to help you create a winning strategy for your organization. Leadership Forum, Inc., helping organizations get it and keep it. Are you an entrepreneur that wants to achieve more? Not just in it for profit, but to do work you find meaningful that adds more value to more people in more ways? Listen for Be More, Achieve More, inspiration for the entrepreneurial mind. With host Chris Cooper, you'll hear from successful achievers from around the world with the passion and experience to offer invaluable guidance. These people are making a difference and will help give you the motivation and insight to achieve more. Be More, Achieve More can be heard live Fridays at 8 a.m. U.S. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. 
These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Out of the Comfort Zone. To reach Dr. Wanda Wallace or her guest, call into the program at 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to wanda.wallace at leadershipforuminc.com. Now, back to Out of the Comfort Zone. Welcome back. I've been talking with Paul Minks, who's had 16 years in a financial services firm, both leading teams as well as developing talent and leadership capability. Also joining me are Rob Kaiser, who's got 20-plus years coaching, assessing, and writing about effective leadership. Now, just as we were taking a break, we had been talking about what makes what goes wrong with leaders, and we talked about strengths overused, particularly under times of stress. We talked about having to work through people in a different way. We talked about untested areas. And Rob, just as we were taking a break, you were talking about untested areas such as strategic thinking. So... In this effort, this segment, I want to focus on how do you develop some capability. So let me start with that component. Rob, how can you develop strategic thinking? Well, if I had the magic sauce, I could make a bajillion dollars as a consultant. <laughs> it seems to be the thing everyone is looking for in leadership talent. Uh, you know, I, th- I think there's some basic things, some broadening experience early in one's career seem to be associated with the capacity to think strategically at a more senior level. And by there, I mean opportunities to work across functions, doing stints in different areas, across cultural boundaries to see how other parts of the world do business, or perhaps in uh, different industries altogether. Also, seeing a diversity of business challenges, whether it be a crisis situation, a turnaround situation, or a steady-state situation where you've got an old organization and an old business model that seems to be doing just fine and the challenge is squeezing profits out of thin margins. All these different kinds of challenges you face in all these different situations help to expand your mind to see a broader picture. Now, that's pretty conventional wisdom there. We seem to understand that. And unfortunately, a lot of people don't have the luxury of getting a chance to step into these diverse situations. There's one thing we've been doing the last couple of years that seems to really help stretch people's minds and to see problems from a broader context. And, you know, strategy is so often associated with change. And the funny thing about change is it's conventional wisdom that people don't like change. But I disagree with that. I think if you ask most people if they'd like to change something, they'd be quick to give you a list of things to change. But it's usually about somebody else changing, and it's rarely about things they need to do differently. And so here's the exercise. Any change initiative that happens to be going on in in your workplace right now, think carefully about that. What are the demands? What kinds of things are you being asked to do differently? 
what kinds of things are you having to adapt to? And what kind of pressure does that put on you? Well, now here's the next step. After you think carefully through what change means to you right now, and chances are it's mostly inconvenient and a hassle. Well, now I want you to think about two levels below you in the organization. What does this change agenda mean down there to those people? What kind of inconveniences and hassles and routines are we disrupting? Two levels down in the organization. Okay, now go up two levels above your boss. What does change look like from up there? Why might you be being asked to reinvent what you're doing, to re-engineer things, to change route processes, to do things differently? And what's the benefit to the organization from that vantage point up there? This exercise does a couple of things. One, it helps you in place, kind of use a real situation to, to stretch your mind a bit, to break your personal frame and what you see here in your immediate visual field to have that more expansive view of what's going on. And the other thing, oftentimes it helps you to realize, is this change you're going through really a value-added thing? From two levels up, does this really contribute to our long-term position and value creation? Or is this just another flavor of the month kind of thing? So interesting, Rob. The notion here for you from strategic change is to see the situation from a broader perspective. Um, higher in the organization, lower in the organization, and presumably from outside the organization as well, so that you get that kind of sense of where are we going and why are we trying to do it? What are we trying to achieve here? Very interesting approach. And I like your exercise of just analyzing what you're facing at the moment and trying to see it from the broader point of view. Okay, so Paul, let me turn to you again for a minute. From your experience in corporate life, what have you seen that really works in terms of developing leadership capability? And if you've got a specific issue you want to talk about, that's fine to do it. But what works? What have you seen that works? Um, Wanda, I'd just like to first comment a couple things Certainly. on what Rob just said, which which I thought was great and I totally agree with. I just know from my experience in financial services when – and this is always something I've always struggled with. Whenever I started to talk about strategy, I would be always be greeted by a sea of blank looks. Um, and part of the problem is, of course, in financial services, strategy is frequently, you know, where are your next quarter results coming in? Um, there's such a focus on... You know, immediate delivery, and I think we've got uh, we've got to change that. Um, and one of the things I think that can help is uh, more communication from the top in terms of you know what is a strategic framework that people can operate in or that people can make changes in. So I know I, I, I sort of ended up talking about strategy as how to get from A to B, um, and then sort of if I had any more. Uh, appetite from from other folks, I would go a bit deeper into it. But I know, but I've always, you know, at least in financial services, I know that's always um, a tough one. Um, and and I think that the, the problem with one of the problems with change is also that the, some of these organizations, certainly the ones I've been involved with, are so huge that people get a bit uh, in, in despair, or a bit frustrated about how am I going to make an impact or. You know, perhaps what's what's the point? Um, and I think that 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 type of reinvigoration really, and on both of those, both of those things really need to happen. 
Paul, before you go on, let me just make a comment about this one. Because when I coach people, I routinely get the comment, I don't know what this strategic thinking means. So I just want to pause and frame it here for everyone who's with us today. In part, what we're saying is strategic thinking is both understanding where you are and where you want to get to. So there's a sense of what direction are we going in. But that that direction is informed by the broader perspective, understanding the whole package above you, below you, outside of you, having some sense of the trend line. And then I'm going to add one third piece to it that I think is important, which is also the ability to influence others to see what you see, to have an impact. Okay, so now we're, it's interesting that we've talked about strategic thinking as a leadership capability. Um, I want to turn back to you, Paul, and say what other leadership capabilities do you think are really important to develop and how do we go about doing it? Um, I think, you know, one, I think the thing which is most developmental um, is uh, structured, constructed work experiences that help individuals develop on the job. Um, And I think they're much more effective, really, than um, going to a training class, let's say, for instance. But I do think there is a place, of course, for training as well as coaching and mentoring. But but, um, it's part of a manager's role, I think, to help the individual become more aware of how their work is helping them develop. And that comes through conversations that the manager might have with the employee, um, ideas that the employee brings uh, to, to the manager, and helping to set a framework from the manager's perspective. And this is very difficult to do, and not that not enough managers uh, do it. But I think that thinking about how work develops you and what you're learning from work and perhaps being a bit more self-reflective um, or learning to do that is, is one of the key things to, to developing yourself um, as a leader. All right. So, Paul, I've always believed that opportunities to reflect, to look at what's working and not working is really critical. In fact, I think that's what we do when we do training at its best. But suppose I have a manager who's not very good at this. What do I do now? Well, there's there's co- there's direct ways and indirect ways. So, I mean, direct ways, you know, might be um, to have a conversation with that individual to be able to talk about um, what the goal is of the employee. Be a little, I mean, the, the employee be a bit more transparent about what they need. They can also work with uh, their network in in finding other ways to influence this individual. So frequently, if you want your manager to change, one of the best ways to do it is to find is to talk to someone who knows the manager and is in, and has impact with the manager, and be able to have that conversation with that individual. And this is certainly where building out a network uh, becomes important. Great idea. Um, and I often find people are a little hesitant to ask for help. They need to. It's an important one. Rob, let me turn to you for just one last minute before we go on break. Any other skills that you particularly think people need to look at developing and a quick hint on how we do it? Yes, absolutely. I think in the fast-paced, ever-changing, modern operating environment, it makes more sense not to look at what finite, specific skills do you need to develop, but rather take it up a level to what are the meta skills? 
What I mean by that are the capacity to develop all of these other skills that are transient and may be important now, may not be important later, and all that sort of stuff. At the core of it, in my way of thinking, it's all about developing versatility, which involves two major components. The ability to learn and, from new situations and absorb those lessons. And then the ability to flex and adapt and change your behavior and take a different approach, whether that means, you know, you've got some employees who are very savvy, who just need to be delegated to and managed with a hands-off style. You've got others who need more guidance and direction, so maybe a more hands-on style. Or the ability to, you know, lock in and execute a strategy pick up the signals whenever things aren't working well and it's time to repossess and you've got to zoom out, engage the situation and perhaps reset direction. So learning, adaptability adds up to this queen trait, if you will, the master competency of all, which I call versatility. Okay, so versatility. And so by versatility, you mean that ability to flex, to do one thing in one situation and another thing in another situation. Interesting. So with me today, we're going to take a break now. With me today is Paul Minks and Rob Kaiser. We've been talking about what makes for really great leadership and the mistakes that people make. And the summary out of this session in terms of developing leadership capability really has to do with strategic thinking, meaning thinking more broadly about a perspective along with some other skills. Some meta skills like versatility, and um, the ability to learn and to flex. And in addition, that all-important thing of being able to reflect on what's working, what's not working, and make some changes. We're going to take a break. When we come back, Paul and Rob will join me again, and we're going to talk about how do you know how you're doing. So how do you assess your leadership capability at this moment in time? We'll be right back. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. If you want more information on the coaching and seminars we offer, go to our website at www.leadershipforuminc.com. If you are interested in finding out more, you can also purchase a copy of the forthcoming book or any of Dr. Wallace's current books by clicking on the links under the resources tab on our website at www.leadershipforuminc.com. You're also sure to find some handy links, videos, and more to help you create a winning strategy for your organization. Leadership Forum, Inc., helping organizations get it and keep it. Dialogue is the single most powerful leadership tool we have to make a difference in the world. Leading conversations with host Cheryl Esposito creates a place for that dialogue. Tune into the Voice America Business Channel every Friday as Cheryl hosts new conversations among leaders from around the world in business, government, art, economics, and social change. We'll explore big ideas and everyday actions and learn how their own leadership has led them to discover a newfound sense of possibility in the world. Leading conversations with Cheryl Esposito, bringing big thinkers together in conversations that make a difference right here on the Voice America Business Channel every Friday morning at 10 a.m. Pacific Standard Time. Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. Plus, you get to take advantage of some great member benefits. Get unlimited access to millions of hours of on-demand content across all of our channels. Keep track of your favorite episodes, shows, and hosts in your own customizable library. 
Find out what shows you might be interested in based on your favorites. Plus, you get insider access with our newsletter. Membership gives you more. Sign up at voiceamerica.com and click register at the top right. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Out of the Comfort Zone. To reach Dr. Wanda Wallace or her guest, call into the program at 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to wanda.wallace at leadershipforuminc.com. Now, back to Out of the Comfort Zone. Welcome back. We're glad you can join us. With me today is Paul Minks and Rob Kaiser. We have been talking about what makes for, what are the mistakes that leaders make and what are the key elements that we really need to develop as leaders. I want to pick up from that stream of conversation, Paul, and ask you a very specific question. Have you ever seen a leader make a really big step change in their capability and how do they go about doing that? Um, I have, and it really takes a lot of self-awareness, and I think to, to build yourself as a leader, it, it, it's a long process. Um, I hate to say it. I wish there was a magic pill that everyone could be issued when they enter corporate life, but um, unfortunately there isn't one, and I, I think of an individual who was very much... Um, data-focused and uh, had been promoted. Uh, he loved the detail. He actually was incredibly good at it, which was the, the, other, the other issue. Um, and he was promoted to heading up a team of very talented uh, direct reports. Um, and where he got into trouble, basically, was that he thought that these talented people didn't really need management. Um, because they were talented, right? So that's sort of the assumption that we frequently have that our best employees don't need to be managed as much as the ones who are um, who are who are not as talented. And I, I would say it's probably the opposite, actually. Um, what he did was worked with an executive coach and worked out through a development plan a way to manage each of these people as individuals um, and. To frequently part of the problem with with motive, with um, highly talented people is they tend to be highly motivated, uh, but the downside is that they also tend to obsessively compare themselves uh, to others. So he worked on a on a way of highlighting each individual's contribution, finding out what motivated them by spending time with them, um, and this came about through about a year and a half. He had. Unfortunately, along the way, he lost one of his senior people, and that was a real moment that made him really start to pay more attention. I think what also worked here was because he was data-driven, he was given a lot of data in terms of feedback, which was uh, uh, leadership profiling reports. Um, He was also given um, quite a bit of 360 feedback from people he respected, which I think is really key um, to reaching people who are quite data-driven. Um, so the good news is he turned himself around and eventually you know, got promoted. He also, somewhere along the line, learned how to delegate, which I think is a very difficult thing uh, to do in any role. All right, I'm going to come back to the delegate comment in a moment. So you said that this particular individual was motivated by being, was competitive, at losing a key member kind of was a wake-up call, and having some very solid data got his attention. 
And then it was about spending time with each of the individuals to understand what each of his direct reports really needed from him getting to know them. You also said he worked with a coach. Do you think the coaching assignment was effective? I do. I think one of the most effective things about coaching is in a lot of ways it teaches you how to develop yourself by taking you through a structured development approach where you you get feedback, you work on a development plan, and then you do small steps, small innovations, you know, to build your expertise. And I think that practice is, is, is a really valuable one that you can take and start to do yourself after the coaching assignment is over. So I think, yes, it was a quite a, quite a, a useful coaching assignment. And while you're on this one, do you have an ideal process for coaching, or are there a bunch of different processes? I think there are different processes. I think the, the process for coaching for an individual who's having difficulty is slightly different than one where you're trying to develop them you know, in the highest potential possible. Um, I mean, I think the, the, the major pieces here, and it'd be great to get your input and Rob's, you know, are, are gathering the reasons why they're doing it, gathering the data, uh, giving it to them, helping them develop a, a development plan, and, and then that focused development plan going through uh, the process where the employee tries out each of the things they're going to be doing and see how it goes in the workplace. If it doesn't work, then they go on and try something different. So, Rob, let me bring you in at this point. Do you think there's an ideal coaching process? Well, I think most effective coaching processes go through three basic phases, right? We, we do some sort of an assessment or identification of what's going well versus what might need to be tweaked. Uh, the second phase is you, you implement some changes and, and you kind of course correct as you go. And at the end of it, and this is where there's a great variability, is to what extent are you taking good, meaningful gauges of how much you're moving the needle? Uh, outside of that simple structure, there's, uh, you know, or I should say within that simple structure, there are better and worse coaching processes. I think the key ingredients are that it's individually tailored. In other words, it's not one size fits all, but it's focused on me and what I need to learn. There is a little bit of chemistry in terms of that, oh, what in the psychotherapy world they call the therapeutic alliance. There's a similar thing, the chemistry a coach and a leader happen to have. Do they gel? Do they jive? Do they develop a shorthand based on mutual respect and a way of communicating? Uh, that's a key part of the whole thing, too. And then the third stuff, you know, there's all these different techniques and approaches to coaching. I don't know of any evidence that says one is more superior than the other. As long as you have some sort of assessment on the front end, you've got a strong alliance and relationship, and there's some sort of structured follow-through mechanism that puts some accountability and support into it, they tend to work pretty well. That's interesting. So this whole notion, again, about assessment is a really important one. And I like, Rob, your notion that it's not just assessment at the beginning, but it's also assessment along the way. What actually is working and are you getting the intended results? So let's talk for a minute about assessment. So there's a lot of processes. And I want to start with an example of one of my client companies where we put, we take the top 200 um, and we're going to put them through a battery of tests. 
In this particular client, we're going to do an IQ test, a verbal reasoning test. We're going to do a 360 assessment involving peers and direct reports and superiors and so forth. We're going to do a classic inbox exercise. We're going to look at a mock interview and a series of other things. There's often a team process to see how you work with other teams. So we do a day long or hours long of assessments. We generate a massive report at the end of the day, and we hand the report, perhaps with a great coach to go through it, and then what? So, Rob, what's your view of what makes for great assessments? Not that. (laughs) Look, you know, I think the field of assessment needs a reboot. Uh, You know, those of us who do this work, we're kind of geeky about it. We love our assessment tools. We like our two-by-two frameworks and all our little models. But let's face it, this thing your client just went through, all this poking and prodding and measuring and testing, at the end of the day, good coaching looks like this. You come out with one or two things to focus on really moving the needle. These need to be high-leverage, high-impact kinds of skills or competencies or ways of seeing the world. And that's all a person can, can work on. The idea of needing to cover the waterfront in all these different ways and multiple methods is, is, is an anachronism. It's a holdover from how we were trying to fumble toward figuring out how to do this work in the last century. Bottom line, you want to do a focused assessment for development that can really drive impact? Simple. Talk to coworkers. Do a brief structured interview. Heck, simply ask, you know, Drucker's famous three question. What should this person stop doing, start doing, or continue doing? And look for the convergence. Second, I'm a fan of 360s, too. You can get some ratings to calibrate that stuff, but make sure it's tight and pithy. It's not one of these pay-by-the-pound, long, cumbersome, complex models. And third, if you want to really drive the self-awareness component of this, which I couldn't agree with Paul Moore is fundamental, consider adding a robust personality assessment to help the person not just understand how he or she is seen in her current, or his current role, but also what are some of the deeper drivers at the character level that's behind those behaviors. You put that tight package of three different assessments, an interview, a brief targeted good 360, and a robust, well-validated psychological assessment, and now you're cooking with gas and have all you need. Fabulous, Rob. Now, why the personality assessment? Why does that matter so much? Well, more and more, it's an interconnected, collaborative, and networked world. And to understand not just your own default tendencies, but also how that might conflict, or in some cases, mesh well with the people around you. I find that managers, generally speaking, do not tend to be particularly psychologically minded, both in terms of self-awareness and self-understanding, but also in terms of understanding the broad range of different types of people around them. These types of frameworks give them that kind of objective self-awareness, but also a framework and a lens for appreciating the different people around them. All right, so this is actually a component of emotional intelligence, if you will, that I use the personality assessment to get to know myself and to know other people in contrast to my styles and preferences, and that's the reason you use a personality assessment. That's really well put in an astute observation. Yes, it's a way of teaching one how to be emotionally intelligent without trying to measure his or her emotional intelligence. Okay. 
All right. So, Rob, your view then is that there are three components we need in a great assessment process. One is we need a conversation with coworkers on things like start, stop, continue. We need some 360 process that gets a broader perspective. We need a personality assessment. And we need a process that drives a great deal of self-reflection through those assessments. And then, Paul, if I summarize from you, you want to make sure then that there is some follow-up, that we're assessing, you know, have an action plan, and we're testing to see whether or not that action plan is effective or ineffective. Yes, and the only thing I would really add to what I thought Rob um, phrased very well was that these are all just support tools, um, the assessments and all these other things that we're really talking about. It's, it's, it's really a way of opening up a conversation either between the coach and the employee or the manager and the employee. Um, and that's all they really are in a lot of ways. Um, and uh, I, I always think of a, I used, there was a, a, a guy I was working with who took uh, an MBTI workshop uh, from Myers-Briggs and he came out of it and he had he had religion you know with with Myers-Briggs and he you know he, he was treating this as a secret window into all of his employees and you know he was going around and, and accusing people of being different um, things and I remember when trying to get one of his employees promoted and he was talking about uh, that this person was not at a promotion roundtable was obviously not ready and he kept saying but he's an ESTJ he's an ESTJ that's the profile of people in financial services Um, so I always think of, of we need to help people understand with these tools how they can best be used I think that's a great point, Paul, that these tools only start or are only important if they start an important conversation that's not happening. I look at development working best when it's a team sport, and I think another critical ingredient to that process, Wanda, is when a manager going through assessment and coaching reports out after you do the upfront diagnostic and you have a couple of changes you want to make and a plan to make them, it's important to go back, make development a team sport by sharing what you learned thanking your colleagues for their input, telling them what they can expect to see from you in terms of behavior change, asking for their help, and asking if they have any suggestions. When you get people involved, the social psychology of public commitments and all that sort of stuff come together, you're modeling the way for your employees and you're inviting people to create together a culture for development. Fabulous example. This has been a, a, a great conversation. We're going to take a break again. Um, so we've been talking with Paul Minx and Rob Kaiser about how do you go about assessing and developing leadership. And when we come back from the break, we're going to do a few wrap-up comments about the last advice that Rob and Paul have to offer from years of experience of developing leaders. So we'll be right back. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. If you want more information on the coaching and seminars we offer, go to our website at www.leadershipforuminc.com. If you are interested in finding out more, you can also purchase a copy of the forthcoming book or any of Dr. Wallace's current books by clicking on the links under the resources tab on our website at www.leadershipforuminc.com. You're also sure to find some handy links, videos, and more to help you create a winning strategy for your organization. Leadership Forum, Inc., 
helping organizations get it and keep it. Engage with Andy Bush takes you inside the mind of a top global market and public policy analyst who has been featured regularly on CNBC, Yahoo Finance, and numerous radio and television programs. Our program will bring you guests and stories from the top of the political and business worlds. Each show includes Andy's point of view roundup and what it means for you at home. Life's complicated. Let Andy help you figure it out. Tune in every Friday at 12 noon Eastern Time, 9 a.m. Pacific on the Voice America Business Channel. Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. Plus, you get to take advantage of some great member benefits. Get unlimited access to millions of hours of on-demand content across all of our channels. Keep track of your favorite episodes, shows, and hosts in your own customizable library. Find out what shows you might be interested in based on your favorites. Plus, you get insider access with our newsletter. Membership gives you more. Sign up at voiceamerica.com and click register at the top right. The business community's first choice in Internet Talk Radio, Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Out of the Comfort Zone. To reach Dr. Wanda Wallace or her guest, call into the program at 1 866 472 5790. Again, that's 1 866 472 5790. You may also send an email to wanda.wallace at leadershipforuminc.com. Now, back to Out of the Comfort Zone. Welcome back to the show. We're glad you joined us. With me today is Rob uh, Kaiser and Paul Minx. Paul has spent a lot of years in financial services, developing leaders and leading teams, and Rob has spent a lot of years developing talent and assessing people as well as writing about leadership. All right, so as we were ending that last segment, we were talking about assessment, and in particular, we got into a discussion about the kinds of assessment that you should use and how to go about using a coach. So, Rob, I want to start on this first one. We hear a lot of conversation about high potentials, and I'm sure lots of listeners have either been identified as high potentials or wish they were identified as high potentials. How do you go about identifying high potentials? And I mean, that's a $64,000 question. <laughs> Uh, You know, first thing, there's a big difference between assessing people for their own learning and development versus assessing people to identify who has stakes to make it to the top. Uh, So it is a fundamentally different challenge, so that's going to be a point of departure for what I said earlier about assessment for development. The biggest problem I see with contemporary practice on identifying high potentials is there's a real confusion between past performance and future potential. In fact, one pretty name-brand company I work closely with got so frustrated with their inability to identify future potential that they said, oh, the heck with it. We all know that potential is demonstrated in performance. We're going to use performance to identify our hypos. And that was just the wrong idea because what it takes to manage employees is not the same as what it takes to manage managers. What it takes to manage managers is not the same as what it takes to manage a business. And managing a business is not the same thing as what it takes to manage a portfolio of businesses. My advice, and I've worked with a number of companies, advised a number of companies on looking at potential, is to simplify it. Dare to place your bets strategically in a couple of areas. First, yes, you have to look at track record and prior success, but don't put as much emphasis on it. And less than prior results, look more at the pattern. 
Has the person taken on a diversity of assignments? Do they show signs of developing a broad perspective and an ability to see out of their area of expertise or their functional silo? Does broadening the experiences I talked about earlier are critical, especially in the formative years of one's career? And how about a history of responding to feedback and adjusting behavior? What's the evidence that the person can, in fact, adapt when provided with some sort of information that things aren't going as well as they could? And then there's the tricky one. Those who are likely to be disruptive as a senior leader, and I mean those people who are going to reinvent industries, introduce new technologies, put in the market breakthrough services and products, those types of people look like rebels. Early in their career, they tend to be a little under-socialized, and they're anything but a model corporate citizen. You know, think Steve Jobs. Along his way, he got asked to leave the company he started because he was such a rebel. But the very same thing to get you in trouble in middle management is that same irreverent mindset, daring to think creatively and differently, daring to challenge convention, that it takes to be a game changer in senior leadership. And so the trick is identifying these rebels early on and helping them survive the gauntlet as they run through middle management, where you help them to develop some of the people side, some of the manners, if you will, and decorum to not rub everyone the wrong way and not make a lot of enemies. So, Rob, we're right back where we started at the very beginning, which is talking about the mistakes leaders make, and we made the point at the very beginning that it's the transition points where people can't change their styles, their approaches, they're not adaptable. That's exactly what we need to identify, people's capability to do that. All right, so Paul, I want to give you the last word here. We've got about two minutes. What's your advice for people who are with us today who want to know how to develop their capability? Any last words of advice? Um, I'll try. So a couple things. One, you know, we've talked a lot about self-awareness. That's you've you've got to really understand as you get more senior how you're coming across with other people. Um, and one thing which you know I got in the habit of doing was keeping a list of accomplishments and things that weren't quite so successful. I kept it in my BlackBerry as a memo. Um, and I reviewed it periodically. Um, it really helped me as I looked at it over time. I realized that a lot of the things that I thought were so I had done so poorly actually weren't that bad, um, and sometimes vice versa. But it does help you develop a bit more a bit more perspectives on yourself, and and you really need to be able to calibrate that as you get more senior. Another version of that is is getting getting as much feedback as you can as you get more senior. Uh, the feedback starts to thin out, um, and you know, senior uh, your your bosses frequently don't have time to give you feedback, and the ones that are junior are probably afraid of you. So, uh, it, it's actually being proactive about asking people for feedback without being difficult. So, just saying, you know, what's one thing that if I could change, would you have me do? Would you have me do differently? Uh, So, Paul, let me me stop you at that point and just sort of summarize where I think we've landed, because I think we've come full circle. There is this sense of the need to be adaptable, particularly as you go through transitions, and the only way you're going to be adaptable is if you get some great feedback from people around you, 360 if no otherwise, and some heavy-duty self-reflection. 
Let me stop to say thank you both for Rob and Paul for joining me today. It's been a fabulous discussion. And next week, I'm going to be joined by Craig Rundy, and we're going to talk about that challenge of how do you deal with your coworkers when there's conflict and contention? How do you navigate through that in a way that's constructive and gets you all to results that you're looking for? So again, Rob and Paul, thank you very much for joining me. And um, we hope to see you again next week. Thank you, Wanda. Thank you, Wanda. Always a pleasure. Thanks again. Thank you again for joining us for Out of the Comfort Zone. Tune in again for another edition with Dr. Wanda Wallace next Friday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time and 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Take charge this week. We'll be right back. 